0: كان بحاجة كثير سعيدة بصراحة كنت أطلع إني زوجي أيدنا بإيد بعض تحس في سعادة نابعة من الداخل ما كنتش حاسة بمشاعر قلق أو خوف الحرب هادش اللحظات الشي اللي كان حلم بالنسبة صار على كامبوس عندنا على البيت تقريباً كانوا ش خمس وعشرين واحد، فخذوا مع درجة.
1: <تصفيق> معلومات عن زوجي لازم أروح على مراكز الأمن والفروع بالأمن بالبشام موجودة. تعتقدين إنه هو لا يزال على قيد الحياة؟ في أنت نائم بالليل في برميل بنزل، هناك ما فيش أمان، هناك في إذا بتروح اليوم أخي ما فيش حكم القوي قوي القوي بوقف الظاهر. يعني ما راح على الحرب. شوفني حالك مالي. وينس؟ أنا بس
0: بدي أعرف أو أوصل له إنه لازم أعرف إنه هو ميت ولا
1: عايش.
0: وين بيسأل عن هي الأم وهي الأخت هي الأب هي الابن. أنا اسمها نادي وهذه قصتي. Hello and welcome to the Maths Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 486. Currently appearing on a festival film circuit across the US is Dreams of Dara, a documentary that tells the story of Hanadi, a young mother from the war-ravaged country of Syria, who sets out on a heroic wartime journey to secure a safe home for her and her daughters an intimate and often heartbreaking chronicle of how hope and humanity can survive the horrors of war. Dreams of Dara also marks the feature film debut of director Riley Dowd, who I'm glad to say joins me now on the podcast. Riley, how are you?
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. It's just such an incredible documentary that you put together, an incredible story. It's really interesting, though, how it all kind of came to be. So this documentary goes all the way back to 2015. Um, initially, the movie, you're going to follow a group of professional clowns um, um, who are on a mission to, to spread joy to children um, in this um, refugee camp in in um, Jordan. You know, I believe it's uh, like the largest kind of uh, refugee camp of people from, who were displaced from Syria. Um, and at that refugee camp, when you met Han- Hanadi, she, at that time she's a 25-year-old mother the three daughters, Um, how did you come about meeting her while you were there? Was she someone you introduced to? Is that someone you just come across, uh, you know, just like naturally during the progress of your filming? How did that meeting kind of uh, happen?
1: Yeah, so it was really interesting. Initially our our film crew went in with this group of clowns from Red Noses International, which are half based in Vienna and Palestine, and they were performing primarily in centres with children. So Hanadi just happened to be volunteering there or working there for one NGO called Mercy Corps. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really, we, we, we knew we wanted to tell a story about uh, women. And it was really challenging at first to find women who were willing to either show their face or give their real name or... Um, even just appear on camera. They were really, there was a lot of fear around where would this appear? Is it going to be on television? And Hanadi just right off the bat was like, my name is Hanadi Al-Saidi. Here's my story. I mean, she really wanted to uh, share what she had been through. So initially, yes, we thought the film was going to chronicle the the clowns primarily. Um, But over time, it really shifted to Hanadi's story.
0: Is it easy to to switch course um, like that? Because I'm sure, you know, yourself being an independent filmmaker, um, you, you know, new to the region, you probably have lots of contacts probably associated with Red Nose, um, the Red Nose Camp and the, and the people uh, that work with the clowns and, and the professional clowns themselves. I'm sure kind of like switching tact in such what have being kind of a difficult decision to make.
1: It really was a decision that evolved over time. Um, it was... Really, I'm going to say six months after we started filming, um, really had made partially the. Dis- we knew Hanadi would be in the film, um, wasn't exactly sure if she would be the primary focus of the film. But maybe six months after we started filming, she made the decision to return to Syria to try and find her husband who was taken by the Assad regime. And it was really at that point where where the arc started to become clear. Um, What Hanadi was living through, what she was fighting for, um, how high the stakes were for her. So I went back to Jordan and filmed her leaving the camp, and it really it added some major complications because I, of course, couldn't go into Syria, the most dangerous place in the world for especially American journalists at that time.
0: Mm.
1: And so we had to rely on citizen journalists there and our contacts there, and even Hanadi to film uh, some of the footage herself. But it was really at that point where it was like, okay what is, what what is your heart saying? Where, where where's the story going? I mean, I heard this quote once that I love, I think it was by Alfred Hitchcock. And he said in feature films, God is the, the director is God and in documentaries um, God is the director. And that's so true. Like life was just unfolding and we had to document it. So I think at that point, her going back to Syria is really when it, when it became about her,
0: when you receive the footage from the citizen journalists that you have on the ground, especially in Syria, um, how does that given to you? Do you get it online? Do you get it sent to you via courier, et cetera? And when you do get it, do you already kind of like start sifting through and doing some kind of editing and such on the go? Or do you kind of like chronicle all your stuff, kind of file it away? Because I'm really interested because considering that this journey, this journey, um, documentary took around five years of filming i mean i imagine that you would have hours upon hours of footage to sit through
1: we did have hours of footage but what came out of syria i mean it was really challenging to get footage from inside syria um there were times where people would just disappear completely we had to work through contacts even all the way up to the cia to find people to who were willing to go into what was a really an anti Assad territory Mm. where there was active bombings going on um, to film. And also Hanadi being a single woman, I mean, without her husband, without her father, without her brothers around, like there were a lot of cultural barriers too. Um, And a lot of questions get asked when suddenly a camera crew shows up in a town like that. Um, So we were very cautious about when to go in, how to go in and how to do it in a really low low profile way. So we were able to fortunately find a couple people. Um, some of them lived in that actual town, but you can tell like the quality of the footage is a lot less, but what, what we were getting was just really powerful. And some of it was just her day-to-day life there which I really wanted to capture. Um, how they got it to us was a total mix. In some cases we had one person literally physically have to bring a hard drive out of the country In Mm. other cases, we were able to upload it um, in very small gigabyte, (laughs) piece by piece through cell phones. Um, And some of it Hanadi shot herself on her phone, which um, would take weeks to get to us because of just data and cutting off Wi-Fi and cutting off cell service inside the territory that she lived. So it was complicated. But um, I think that Syria footage was really important to tell
0: the story. The footage in the um, camp in Jordan was incredibly fascinating. Um, I think a lot of people would have the perception that because um, a lot of the refugees there are out of Syria, that they are out of harm's way, um, which is not the case at all. There's different dangers that can come from being in a refugee camp as well, especially as you said previously, I'm, I'm Anadi being a single mother, she has three daughters, she has to work through, during the day as well. Um, and then there's this um, the problems with um, and I, I didn't even figure out, figured that this could, could could have been a problem. But with um, the gas burners that's given to a lot of the families so they can you know uh, make their food, etc., they're like a lot of them were kind of like blowing up, weren't they? And there's been fires and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, on uh, one hand, fascinating to watch, but on the other hand, I was incredibly concerned watching it, even though I am watching something uh, that has happened in the past. But I couldn't help but think um, just how hard it was for her for her family and everyone else there as well i mean for yourself when you're there on the ground in, in jordan in that camp i mean just the things you would have seen there i mean just the idea that something as trivial as say, a gas burner could be a source of incredible danger that's just kind of mind-blowing to me mm-hmm. anyway yeah,
1: I know mean, it, it was pretty hard to capture on film just how severe the weather is there i mean we were there in january and it was absolutely bitter cold and these I mean, she's lucky to live in what they call a caravan, um, which is made of essentially corrugated metal. A lot of people were still in tents, but it was it was so like bone chilling kind of cold in January. And then in, in July, the complete flip, I mean, it was so unbelievably hot. and And that's hard to capture on camera, just the extent of that, if you're not used to that kind of weather and you're not prepared for it. But on the other hand, like it is a miracle that this camp happened. I mean, it sprung out of absolutely nowhere in the middle of the desert in northern Jordan and houses at the time we were there, I want to say one hundred twenty thousand Syrian refugees. So mm. like starting a city from nothing, almost, of course, there were problems with um, sanitation and water and safety and electricity and all of these things that we take for granted living in living in the cities that we live in. Um there were all kinds of challenges, just day-to-day life there. But people also find their community and they find ways of finding hope and find ways of being really industrious and entrepreneurial and, and making it work for them. One of the most challenging things about that camp is it's it really feels like a state of limbo. I mean, mm-hmm. people, these days are a refugee on average of 22 years. So I think what's really tough is just, is not even the... challenges of day-to-day life or the fears of you know a a tank a, a fire but really just this uncertainty and this question of like when will I be able to return home will I ever be able to return home will I ever see my family again that just living in this real state of limbo is I think what is most um challenging for a lot of people there
0: there's a um a line from the movie, from the documentary, which really kind of stuck with me. I had to write it down in my notes. So the scene is that um, you're interviewing um, Hanadi and her children are next to her, and in the background, I think some kids might be playing with uh, fireworks or something. I'm not sure what it was, but it was kind of like yeah. a big bang, and everyone yeah. flinches except for her. And yeah. you ask her, you say to her, "Why is it that when that bomb went off, you didn't move?" Um, and she simply said, "We coexist," as yeah. in that she has become so in tune to the sound, to the vibration of those bombs dropping. Of course, in her time uh, in Syria in, in during that time of like really intense fighting, that she just mm-hmm. becomes a part of her being. I mean, that's just an incredible line. When she said that to you, I don't know about you, but I got a little bit of a shiver down my spine when I heard that because it's just the simplicity of it, but the power of it as well is quite remarkable.
1: Right it was almost like you know welcome to my life here mm. here it is um by comparison zatari refugee camp was a lot safer um but i think that those kinds of sounds and those kinds of even background sounds were just had become so much a part of her life in syria before going to the camp so yeah it was a really telling moment
0: so she wants to go back to Syria, to her city of Daraa. For people who don't know, that's I'm think, I'm pretty sure you could correct me, Riley. Um, so that's in southern Syria, and that was a territory that was like really like a target of of strikes from both Russian and um Syrian forces. Um, it was just yeah, it was quite an incredibly dangerous place to be. Um, essentially, she was returning back to a war zone, and you know, one of the biggest reasons why she wanted to do so is she wanted to find out what happened to her husband. Um. At that moment, though, um, you mentioned that Hitchcock line before, you know, when it comes to, you know, um, uh, the director of a documentary's got, you know, you're seeing a situation now unfold in front of you, and that is, I'm sure you wouldn't have imagined would unfold in front of you. Um, and the responsibility of a documentary, of course, is just to, you know, film what's in front of you. But the responsibility of you as a human being is a completely different thing. I mean, you essentially you refuse to watch on and just see where the chips may land and capture on video and go on your merry day. You wanted to take part and try to help out as much as you can um, to help help Nina, um, help out. Uh, try to find out, you know, Hanadi, you know, through the process of getting to Syria and then afterwards getting out of Syria because things intensified again. Um, when it came to making that decision, um, that you were not just going to be a, a witness to um Hanadi's story, you wanted to um help out um with it so that you know because this is very much a life and death situation that she's facing. I'm sure for yourself that it would have been maybe not a hard decision to do morally, but but when it comes to logistics and other things like that, I mean, was it easy to kind of Deal with the bureaucracies of the of the many things that she was facing and helping her out and trying to help her uh, find a way out of the situation that she found herself in?
1: Oh wow. It was definitely not easy. I mean, this whole thing was like a logistical, political, cultural. Um, I mean, it was it was definitely not easy. But at the time where she decided to go back to Syria, um, I really was not involved so much in that decision. Like she had made up her mind at that time. There was a ceasefire. There were thousands of people returning to Syria Mm -hmm. and the situation in the camp had become just increasingly dire for her Um, financially, but also she was concerned about safety. And I mean, it's kind of unbelievable, but her town in Syria, if you could drive it is really like less than an hour. And I think when, when she says, you know, my mom, my mom called, she said, if you're struggling, just come home. I thought that was like, you know, such a universal feeling of like, okay, I just want to be with my mom. I just want to be home. I can't, I can't live here indefinitely. Like there's no future here for my girls. And there was no convincing her out of it. But at the same time, she knew she was giving up her refugee status. And that meant she wasn't going to be allowed to return to Jordan. It's really a one way. Um, It wasn't until... She was back in Syria when things really intensified, both with the bomb. They had bombed a local children's hospital very close to her. Um, They didn't have electricity. They didn't have running water. One of her daughters was hit by a car. I mean, there were so many things happening. And she was just like, I made a huge mistake. I shouldn't have come here. And I tried for more than a year um, to help get her asylum, to help get her out, going through the proper channels people always asked, you know, what, what set what makes her different? What, why we always, and, and there, there became a point where she said to me, you can't release this film. You have to change my name and blur my face. Like at this point, the whole focus of our film was her. Um, so I always knew, okay, we're going to have to, maybe it will be a film festival, but before this film is out there in the world, she's going to need to be out of Syria and she's going to need to be out of harm's way. Mm. Um, so then it happened that she received this, you know, she went to the regime headquarters in Damascus to inquire about her husband, she got this handwritten quasi death certificate that said that her husband had died in prison. Um and I used that. I submitted that to the UN and multiple government bodies and it was about a year later when the UN wrote to me inviting me to come and testify about the circumstances of her husband's disappearance and I just thought it really should be Hanadi. It should be a firsthand account. Um, so that was really where the process began of me trying to help get them out of Syria. Unfortunately, um, we had the UN support in doing that and making her testimony happen in person. But it was truly the logistical uh, challenge of of a lifetime, I would say. It's We are,
0: I think, entering the 11th year now of the war in Syria, um, and there is still fighting going on over there. However, the last few years has really been kind of taken over by COVID, the war in Ukraine. Has Syria become the forgotten war to people out there? Um, And how how much do we need to stress that there are still really – really bad things happening over in Syria. And just because it isn't on the news, it doesn't mean that uh, a armed conflict is happening between its government and its people.
1: I mean, in many ways, the situation in Syria today is worse now than it has ever been. I think a lot of people would argue that President Bashar al-Assad has won. He has a, a lot of support. Um, but to this day, I mean, this winter, people are starving to death. People are freezing to death. The bombings are continuing um syria's i mean half of syria's pre-war population of 22 million has been displaced so it's it's there's no and there's no real solution obvious solution in sight anytime soon um but people need to know about this and they need to know what's going on so my hope with this film is that we can reignite a conversation around it
0: when did the animations come into, into play with this movie? Because I find them to be incredibly effective in, in kind of like uh, telling the story, uh, Hanani's story, and also the story of her children as well. I think it was a really kind of clever way to really present uh, a lot of the emotional kind of things that happened uh, uh, within their life at that time.
1: Thank you. Yeah, the animations are done by um, an animator named Will Kim. And initially, it's I, I had this... Feeling, you know, this isn't necessarily a war film. I think people were really um, kind of paralyzed by the images of young children or bloody people being pulled from rubble. I wanted almost like radio when you listen to a radio story and you can imagine the story for yourself or imagine the imagery, it can be much more powerful. So I was drawn to this idea of abstract animation to help tell some of the more um, gruesome parts of the story, really, or traumatic parts of the story to allow audiences to kind of picture it and allow our sound design to take um, a bigger role. Um, but a lot of it was I, I really wanted Hanadi's three daughters perspective in the film, but they're so young. I didn't want to interview them. Mm. Obviously the war, their experience. So I would ask them throughout filming to draw for me. So I'd say draw home, draw family, draw Syria, draw a day of your life and the things that they came up with in art. They would never say in words. So we used many of those drawings to inspire the animation. Some of the sequences even start with their artwork. And I really felt like that was a way to bring in uh, their perspective on on the war and their own experience.
0: I think it worked out so incredibly well. And I, I just got to ask my final question here. Um, how is Hanani now? From what I understand, is it true that her and the daughters have uh, asylum in, in Germany? Is that correct?
1: They are living in Berlin. Uh, they're doing really well. They have an apartment. Bissan, the, the middle child, speaks six languages now. Wow. Um, <laughs> incredible, including Russian. Um, and they're doing really well. They're really well adjusted. She just came to um, Portland uh, her first time in the U.S. a couple weeks ago to see the film. And it was really just a magical experience getting to celebrate with her and honor her. Um, so her life looks completely different now, but she's she's happy there and she's found community there and they are um they want to stay.
0: That's excellent. I mean, it's just a such a remarkable story, such a remarkable journey. Um, and for people out there listening, Dreams of Dara uh documentary is they're currently doing the film festival rounds throughout the US. So I really recommend people go to dreamsofdara.com and Dara is spelled D-A-R-A-A. So dreamsofdara.com. And also check out uh, Riley's um, Instagram. That's mrileydowd. I really recommend you check those two places out for the latest updates, for festival screenings, for any type of um, news regards to um, uh, screening times, perhaps maybe on on TV or or streaming, because it is really a a story that people need to watch. And and I think it's really important, uh, Riley, that people don't forget that there is a war in Syria happening. It's it really is, it has displaced millions of people, and the story of this of this one uh, woman who was displaced and put under so much duress, but her ability to be able to uh, rise above uh, the ashes of the of the rubble and the 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 dirt and everything else around her to keep her her three daughters intact and to have them uh, survive and also thrive now. Um, I, I think is just remarkable and uh, a lot of that I think has to come down to to yourself as well and, and uh, your um, uh, resources and, and helping her out and, and also how you captured the story. I think it was just a, a really it was a remarkable thing. The movie goes like uh, 58, 59 minutes, but it's an impactful uh, 58, 59 minutes. It really had me kind of just gripped to the screen all the way watching it. So congratulations to you and um any word about any type of screenings or anything, uh, please let me know. I'll be happy to uh, share them with my, uh, my listeners and my audience.
1: Sounds great. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's great to be with you.